Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I am in Hong Kong in the office, in the an office at Hong Kong Baptist University, or Baptist University of Hong Kong, with one of my oldest friends, John Ernie. And I'm going to get you to pronounce the Vietnamese part of the name, John, <laughs> but I'll try in my pathetic uh, Gaijin way, I'm mixing up the whole of Asia in this madness, right. but then you mix up the whole of Asia in your madness, right? <laughs> John Nguyet, Ernie, mm-hmm. is that reasonable? Uh, you need a bit more nasality with Nguyet. John Nguyet. There Ernie. you go. Because Vietnamese is a very nasal language. That's why there are so many of them in Australia, right? Yes. Yeah. Australian nasality. A lot of Southeast Asian languages, you know, uh, are very nasal. Cambodia. Yet, yeah. Okay, great. Well, that has, having gotten through that, uh, John is not only one of my oldest friends, but somebody whose work I've admired for a very long time. And in fact, I was able to tell you something I, I guess I hadn't told you before, which is that years before we met, when I was a very young academic, I set your work for you know, 300 students to read, some of your early work on audiences. But I'd love to know right now what you're working on today okay. here in this very space, as it were. Thanks, Toby. We've been wanting to do this. Um, so finally, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to speak a little bit about um, what's going on. I mean, my work, like so many other people's work, and especially Toby's, um, comes because of a certain um, change or um, political situation, mm. cultural situation that emerges so, you know, these changes spec in the particular kind of approach to the way that uh, we look at scholarship mm-hmm. and, and just general everyday life. Uh, my work has been in human rights. Uh, some readers, uh, some listeners may know about this because I've been working on this for almost a decade since um, I uh, got mad and went to <laughs> law school <laughs> ten year, over 10 years ago now. Yeah. 2003 was when I decided that I needed some formal um, normative training in law because by that time I had realized that some of the work that we try to do Uh in cultural studies in the name of social justice somehow just lacks certain grounding especially in institutional analysis Uh Uh and by institutional analysis I'm thinking even more narrowly about you know so many ways in which the law structures Mm. Our institutions, uh-huh. our procedures, uh-huh. who gets to speak, who has power over whom, and and then it goes from there, uh-huh. the way uh-huh. that it kind of distributes around our social sphere. And so I decided that, you know, I, I wanted to do something on human rights. Yeah. Um, I was very naive. Uh, I still am very naive because I thought human rights, with, with this whole apparatus, uh-huh. international, global apparatus, yeah. <clears throat> Okay, led by the UN, I know we're skeptical, but the UN is the sort of supranational body that um, manages this whole global apparatus on human rights. And I thought that, you know, there are laws, there are procedures, there are diplomats, there are NGOs, civil society, all sorts of exciting things. And the people that I met in, in the world of human rights at that time, even mm. earlier in the, in, the 19, in the late 1990s, when I was in Colombia, uh, in New York, I felt that these people, you know, look very, very committed and very smart. They're committed, they're smart, they're educated, they're thoughtful, they're strategic, uh, and they're also on the right side, by and large. Yes, and in terms of ethics, 
you know, yeah. if you if you just take this plain idea, then I think that there's a lot to be to be discovered, and mm-hmm. a lot to be borrowed in many ways mm-hmm. uh, for those of us uh, who who do cultural studies. But it, but then I thought, you know, anybody can talk about human rights, really, you know, but not too many people know about human rights law, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the legal practices and all the rest of it, I thought that was important for me to do, and so I decided to. Uh, go to law school. It's not something I recommend to anybody. Still today, <laughs> I say this to people. Right? You know, if you, if you, don't, you, you think this work is cool or it's fun or, or, or you don't go to law school. Law school is a crazy place. Anyway, and so for about a decade now, uh, almost everything I write about has a kind of rights dimension to it, mm. one way mm-hmm. or the other. Now, of course, I, I benefit from um, the kind of critical insights from anywhere from post-structural to you know, postmodern thinking, hmm. uh, which uh, provide fuel for reframing human rights and reframing mm-hmm. law, and I think that kind of synergy, you know, mm-hmm. coming from both sides, culture studies on the one hand and human rights on the other, mm-hmm. um, could be quite exciting. So that's what I'm working on. And as part of that, John, how do you deal with the kinds of criticisms of the universalism of human rights that come from the argument about Asian values? Mm-hmm. On one side, and yeah. on the other, yeah. the argument about the problem with the hyper individualism yeah. of the U.S. liberal capitalist ideology, if not practice, yeah. that is said to underpin the Universal Declaration yeah. on Human Rights. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, first, the um, the universalism. You know, I've always said that, and and many of the people who have been affiliated with the UN for many years in different capacities have interestingly argued that there's actually never one universalism at play mm-hmm. in the world of human rights. Mm-hmm. They're not saying there is no universalism. They're just saying there are multiple universalisms. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because they many of these people who recognize legal pluralism. Mm-hmm want to embrace Islamic laws. They want to embrace um, Indian laws. They want to embrace laws that are not coming from the European Enlightenment legal tradition. And because of this, you know, basis that that the world of jurisprudence does recognize this sort of multiple traditions of law, then universalist values about freedom and liberty and, and, and whatnot um, get re- reincarnated in many different mm. versions. Mm. Now, this does not, you know, you know, uh, get rid of the problem that it is still very universalistic, and it glosses over, you know, all sorts of specificities and differences and, and whatnot. But I think, uh, on the other hand, there's something to be said about things that can be, you know, widely applied, especially ethical standards. So that it is true that there are different traditions, but the widely applicable notions, mm. let's say, of um, non-discrimination, mm. is something that you know I I do embrace. Yeah. Uh, so so what if it's universalistic? Yeah. But then you know once you have that, I always in my head make a dis- make a distinction between these so-called universalist ethics mm. and politics. At mm-hmm. another level, mm-hmm. meaning there are political struggles, but they these political struggles could be guided by some of these so-called universalist values, but then the real deal lies in those struggles, right? But then, so I I don't see any major you know kind of political conflict or anything like this. Um, also, of course, you know knowing that these traditions uh, do vary, you know from from one uh, you know legacy legal legacy to the other mm. 
Asian value, um, you know, the Bangkok Declaration, which, you know, it's almost as soon as, this is like 2003 or something, as soon as the Bangkok Declaration was made, only, I think only a year or so later, that many of the Asian nations who, are, who don't feel comfortable in this sweeping framework began to talk back at the UN at some committee, right? And so that, I think, showed that the Asian value came from not Asia at, at large, but certain hegemon within Asia. We, we know who they are. I mean, these uh, more so-called more totalitarian governments who want to say that, you know, we don't want anything from, to do with uh, Western values. So I think that um, uh, even Asian values, or in Africa, there's a whole set of also um, uh, fairly you know, conservative values on human rights. Mm. And so they, they also band it together. And so I think these things have their own way of disintegrating over the years anyway, because there are dissidents uh, who are in human rights, but who don't believe in this overarching kind of mm. regional framework. The individualistic impulse, the liberal impulse of human rights, ever since Marx, you know, talked about that in the Jewish question, had, uh, had, had, had haunted human rights, you know. My, my only kind of response is that, you know, um, the world of human rights uh, over the last 60-some years since the UN, let's arbitrarily mark that as the current moment of human rights of about 60, 65 years, um, had in gradually and quite successfully moved into a collective model of looking mm -hmm. at human rights. Um, you look at uh, mm -hmm. indigenous rights movement, for example, yeah. is a clear example that you, you really can, even you know, especially on legal ground, make individualist claim mm. on land mm. and on heritage. That just this does not make sense. The court would not even listen to that. You have to make those on collective grounds, on historical collective grounds. And so I think uh, there, you know, there's some interesting things going on that try to tackle this. Um, the liberal impulse of uh, liberal individualism, impulse of human rights, still uh, is going strong. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Um, but you know, like I said earlier, um, it really depends on the particularity of political struggles sure. on the ground. It gets interesting when you have organizations like Amnesty International talking about wanting to go back to the 40s and the struggles over whether economic justice would be part of human rights, mm -hmm. and then getting it in the neck from newspapers, as they like to call themselves, such as The Economist, which is a magazine, really, <laughs> weekly magazine, uh, saying, well, that's not what we can have as part of this framework. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that this dialectic is actually a productive one yeah. between individualism and collectivity. Yeah, and uh, because we are both, and, 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 yeah, and yeah. we're multiple fractured cells, and all the things that you've talked about in terms of post-structuralist and post-modern imperatives, right. let us know that. Right, exactly. Right? exactly. That, uh, oh, Solid-state yeah. solid subjectivity, in fact, is always an already fractured. Hybrid cells are the norm, and the law is there precisely because of that. That's Absolutely. why we need it. Absolutely. The right. law isn't one thing. Yeah. I mean, the, fract the notion of the fractured self, yeah. you know, and every time it gets to be re redefined and whatnot, comes from the court in many ways in the yeah. world of human rights because yeah. every, every case that gets adjudicated yeah. differently depending yeah. on the way in which the subject gets so-called interpolated yeah. in the court Absolutely. in many different ways and shades. And so you might have archaeologists or prehistorians being very important subjects in debates over land rights you might have anthropologists being very important in debates over, for example, ritual murder. That's right. That's right. right. Very, yeah. very important. And, and yeah. cultural maintenance becomes a core issue. Uh, we both have used to live in the United States for a very long time. 
uh, I've always argued to people who rightly complain about the heavily litigious nature of the United States today. Mm-hmm. A, this is because mm-hmm. they had their revolution at the wrong moment in terms of what British law was, mm-hmm. but Britain would be the same mm-hmm. if it had stayed with its traditions that existed <laughs> in the 1770s. Mm-hmm. But B, that actually mm-hmm. the place where the working class gets real redress in US politics is not Congress, mm-hmm. it is the courts. Mm-hmm. That's where you actually get some kind of shake. That's right. That's where real issues yes. are debated and where decisions are made about everything from freedom through to you know, an equitable redistribution of income. And, and then later on, of course, the civil rights movement, you know, really relied on the court uh, in many ways. Um, and so not only workers' issues, but workers and, you know... All oppressed right. groups. Exactly. Yeah, really, the law has been incredibly important, even right. though it is not often seen as an obstacle and a problem. It is also a conduit. Now, getting back to the human rights issue, uh, what are the issues, what are the particular foci that you've mm-hmm. had in these 10 years mm-hmm. since you mm-hmm. became a, a lawyer? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you know, I just have a, a degree in, in law so that, you know, I, I know a few things about it. And in some ways, that, that does lend some authority, you're right. Um, I mean, working from Hong Kong, um, more recently, let me maybe I can speak about a few projects that I've done mm. recently. The most recent one um, is, has to do with transgender law. Mm-hmm. Because there's been a groundbreaking law, a ground, ground, groundbreaking case in Hong Kong involving a um, M to F individual who wanted to marry her boyfriend and was rejected at the registry of marriage, and then ultimately she worked through various levels of the court and um, and got through, right? Uh-huh. And in the end, it was it was a victory. But it was, of course, these things come with all sorts of ambiguity um, and and questions. And so I think you know this you know offers to me a, a very interesting moment, not only to think about um, the the body. Mm. in the courts, mm. Mm. especially you know, via the case of the transgender person. But more broadly, uh, as body intersects with sexuality, marriage, um, individual freedom, and these things are vital, you know, not just in Hong Kong. So I want to leap from the Hong Kong situation mm. to be able to, to, to maybe theorize or think about situations a bit more globally, uh, given that it's all the rage now that, you know, questions of marriage, for example. Yeah. Sure. for sexual minorities. So that's one case that I've been working on and very soon I'll be uh, presenting a version of it. Uh, it's a very exciting um, conference in the U.S. I'm going back to the U.S. later on this month. Uh, the conference called Decolonizing Communication with uh, Raka Shomi. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she wanted me to talk about the transgender legal situation mm-hmm. and its relation to post-colonial theory or, and, and moves of decolonization, as it were. And so... Um, uh, there's another project that I recently did. Before we go off that okay. one, do you mind my asking on what basis the court found in favor of the plaintiff? Uh, it was... Firstly, in the, in the court of first instance, uh, the case was rejected because the judge cited an 1800 law, mm-hmm. law made in a marriage law, matrimonial law made in the 1800s back in the UK that this judge still want to still argue that it's applicable to 21st century Hong Kong, right. which said it was basically, you know, marriages between a man and a woman, right? And it was a Christian conduct, Christian exercise. And so that, that basically overturned it. And then um, later on, the other judges in the higher courts um, looked at the language of some of this, and particularly uh, the first court relied on a, a, a case that had proven to be very problematic. It's called a Corbett case. Many of us have heard about that. 
It's also a UK case. But it had been overturned in so many jurisdictions, especially mm -hmm. in the Commonwealth, right. that the judges in the higher courts did not feel compelled to um, abide by Corbett anymore. And right. so in many ways, uh, that overturned it. Um, but it's not the end of it. I mean, just since you ask, since the, the, the final court delivered its decision, the government was therefore compelled because it was the court basically declared that any laws, any local laws that that do not allow a transgender person to marry mm -hmm. um, after having changed uh, his or her sex to marry an opposite sex um, is is unconstitutional, and so the Hong Kong government had to reply to that, and the Hong Kong government's position is that yes, okay, now now you can marry provided that you have gone through the whole gamut of surgical operations. So any sort of in-between hormonal treatments or body reshaping procedures would not qualify you to be a full transgender. So you must have transitioned. You must have completely transitioned and then with two to five years of observation, clinical observation, psychological observation, so that you can get some sort of a certificate from some professional, therefore you can marry. So this is the position of Hong Kong government. It has not, it's it's gone through a reading, but it has not passed into uh, mm -hmm. new new amendments. And so all of us in the um, activist circles are writing all sorts of shadow reports, and and different activities to protest against this using the Convention on Torture. Oh, right. that's interesting. Exactly, because yes. we we thought this constitutes. In a legal term, mm -hmm. in legal terms, torture of the transgender person. So, how can the Hong Kong government make amendment based on that ground? You know, um, supposedly to move transgender rights forward. It's not. No. Right? Anyway. Not at all. No. And the torture element is both requiring surgery, requiring yeah. drug treat treatment in inverted commas, and also requiring surveillance, invigilation, absolutely monitoring. Exactly. It's all those yeah. aspects. Well, that's great. And you're involved in this through non-government organizations? That's right, yeah. I, I, belong, I belong to an organization, a local one, called Pink Alliance. Pink Alliance. Yes. Um, so this is a, a fashion clothing exactly. manufacturing. Yeah, easily, exactly. <laughs> I know. Um, it's, it's a fun name. Yeah, um, it's a great name. But it's, 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 an, it's an alliance group that has existed ever since the 1980s. But I took, I took over as a chairman just two years ago. But I've been involved for about 10 years in the organization hmm. since I um, moved back to Hong Kong. And, and so um, the first, one of the first, just, just as an example, one of the first moves I made uh, when appointed chairman of that, hmm. of that organization was to appoint a vice chair mm -hmm. who is a transgender woman, mm -hmm. Joanne, her name. Uh, and Joanne is a fairly famous and very outspoken a local um, Chinese transgender woman. Mm -hmm. And um, had, she runs around China mostly. I mean, What's her full name? Joanne Leung. Joanne yes. Le. Leung. Yeah. Yeah. Leung. L-E-U-N-G. Yeah. So she runs around China, and many people know her in China. And so I just thought that Hong Kong plus China or in the Asian region, oh. it would really elevate the profile of transgender issues oh. within oh. our organization. Oh. And so through her, you know, like I said earlier, we've been able to write papers to contact legislators mm -hmm. in Hong Kong to educate them about transgender issues to tell them that that's torture, for example, mm. that you do not vote, you know, for that and for the government's right. amendment, etc., right. etc. Et and also, um, our organization raises funds for Joanne 
and and uh, we, she put together a team with some legal and, and activist people to go to Geneva twice already mm. uh, this year and last year mm-hmm. on specific committees yep. and the, the, the very recent one that we were able to support Joanne to go was the CEDAW committee at UN which is about women's issues this is the committee on the elimination of discrimination against women that's right that's right but it was in that context that the transgender issue got a hearing at the UN because the UN does not have its own committee looking specifically at transgender rights mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. So that you have to find different corridors uh, within the UN to, to, to get a hearing. Right. And so she thought CEDAW yeah. uh, would be This is the convention productive. that is the best head of power to use. That's right, exactly. See, I'm not a lawyer, but I like to play one on a podcast. <laughs> Didn't you study law? Oh, I've, it's one of my many drop-out drop out degrees, <laughs> one of my many scholarly failures, I know, which amount by day. But, yeah, I did study some law. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, so. So that's, so I'm, I'm very uh, lucky in this work. way. I'm thinking yeah. about these issues, and then at night I go to some of these meetings, and my mind gets refreshed, because I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm more at the forefront of some of these uh, Is there a website people could visit? Yeah, it's just called pinkalliance.org. Right, that's right. Yes, and it's in Cantonese and English, or just Cantonese? Mostly or? English. Mostly English. Yes, um, yeah. our group happens to be uh, to have had a history of uh, a lot of expat involvement, mm-hmm. um, because these people bring their own sense of uh, you know uh, equality and you know their Western values and things like that. Right. And so, but these are very good allies and friends. Um, and so, but we do have Chinese uh, participants. So, is it mostly? Is it dedicated, in inverted commas, to queer issues, as I'm assuming? Pink Alliance, I yeah. mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all of it. Yeah. Uh, although queer is not a word that we use in the organization. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's just because people are still, you know, using the more traditional LGBT framework. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now that you mentioned, I mean, just two meetings ago, some, a member raised the question about the intersex. So I think maybe people are thinking more more queerly now That's know, in the organization. But when you do that sort of work, you know, the terminology is not that is not that important. I think people just because we 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 work on religion issues, we work mm. on school bullying issues. Yeah, uh, I did another campaign almost two years ago now on school bullying. It's, it's a video mm. campaign. Uh huh. So I made a series of short videos, and some of them are quite. Uh, have had uh, have enjoyed a lot of impact. Mm. A lot of people looked at it and then felt very moved by it. And one of the pieces actually got have gotten a couple of awards, international documentary film awards, and things like that. And so we we were able to move it in you know through legal work and cultural work and advocacy Great. work and different fronts. Great. Now, when I interrupted you and got you to talk about that, you were actually moving on to another topic that you've. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, if you want to uh, just to give an example of another project Mm -hmm. that I've been doing, it's about environmental law. Mm -hmm. I know very little about environmental law because the relation between human rights law as as a family member of the law and environmental law, these are quite separate, actually, Uh, you know, members of the family, as it were. Um, But um, I I wanted to look at the way in which the Victoria Harbour of Hong Kong had been so decimated over the years because of neoliberal values of you know that basically gave so much more privilege to property development mm. uh, of the tycoons in Hong Kong, which had had a direct relation to the way that we we make reclamation projects at the harbor. 
you know, the Victoria Harbour is at the centre, literally geographically, the centre of the territory. Mm. But the size and the depth of the water uh, and, and all of that, and, and even the quality of the water had been um, really deteriorating so much over the years, mm -hmm. uh, largely because of these reclamation projects. Now, these reclamation projects are not there just to make new high-rise buildings for the tycoons. They're also there to make highways and roadways, but they are of the peace. They are of a peace, because sure. the arguments that the government always made in, to allow these tycoons to advance their interests is to say, you know, roads are so congested, so we got to make new roads. Mm. But they never ask why. Why were the roads so congested in the first place? Because you keep building all these buildings around the harbor. And then you say, roads are congested, so let's reclaim more land so that we build more roads. But building more roads did not solve the mm. traffic issues. It only enabled more new buildings to come up mm. around the harbour, on both sides of the harbour, on the Kowloon and Hong Kong side. So over the years, because of this new liberal framework, mm -hmm. the, the harbour just... I mean, the, the joke these days, of course, is that you know, in, in no time it's going to become Victoria River in Hong Kong, right? And then you can, you can walk across. And when I was a kid, or growing up in Hong Kong many, many years ago, you know, one of the romances of Hong Kong was to take that starry, um, the Star Ferry um, ride uh, across the harbour. And that used to take about 15, 20 minutes. You know, very, very nice ride in the breeze. Now, you know how long it takes to get across the harbour? Two minutes wow. on the same ferry. And the water is very rough when you get through. If you, if you have had a chance this time to do it, you know what I mean. The, the roughness of the water had to do with the narrowing of, of the channel, obviously. And so there are all sorts of environmental, and then there are, there are actually proven, and scientists have done this, um, um, sea creatures, life, life that, that is to say, around the harbor, around the shores. And so every time you make reclamation projects, you, you dredge up the very, very toxic mud from the, from the bed of the, of the, of the, of the harbor. And then you destroy all sorts of um, ecological uh, wow. situation in Hong Kong. So there's a whole series of things. So I wanted to use, uh, this was in the 19, early 1990s, I forgot which year, that there was, a, well, there was one very progressive legislator who managed to pass a harbor protection ordinance in Hong Kong. And, had, and since then, people have forgotten about that. So I did a project to trace back on the arguments and the consequences of that, of establishing that ordinance and applying it to the current situations. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the project that I did, but the, pro the, the project that I did and the way that I talk about it um, got other people talking about it in Hong Kong. And so there is like a, a society for the protection of harbor. So there are all sorts of activists who, who are involved in it too. And somehow we got through to the government this is about three years ago. Um, and the government revisited the reclamation issue. And I can tell you, now, this is so indirect. I'm not claiming anything that I personally have to do with it. It's so indirect. But through many different intermediate steps, one of the reclamation projects has been halted mm. around Wan Chai area, which is at the center, uh, pretty central part of the harbor on the Hong Kong side. That project has been halted because there's been so much opposition and we've been writing so many shadow reports to say to document all of these toxicity mm -hmm. and environmental damages and whatnot. That's fantastic. So some of this is quite interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, absolutely. And 
I wonder if we could come back now for a moment to your comment right at the beginning, John, about the importance as animated by your study of law, or as animating your study of law a decade ago, of understanding the policy and programmatic infrastructure of daily life, mm. as well as the warp and woof and the reality of daily life, mm. which is to say the importance of knowing how the state and corporations really function, mm. but also understanding how our subjectivities are framed and experienced not only by them but by ourselves and how they interact. Mm. That's what I take your project in some ways to be, mm, 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 right? Mm, My words, not yours. Mm, mm, mm. My experience is that many, many people involved in cultural studies outside the United States understand this because of what they grew up with. Mm -hmm. And many people involved in cultural studies inside the United States don't understand this because of what they grew up with, which was an ideology that said the state has nothing to do with your life or should have nothing to do with your life. That it's very hard to get across this kind of activism to cultural studies people in the US, not in Canada, not in Mexico, but there. So, that's my entree to throwing you back to your coming to the US to study. So, could we do a little historical leap now? Would that be all right? Sure. Talk about your scholarly and activist trajectory and the topics you worked on, because I think this is interesting and I think there's a hinge to this latter day work. So, you grow up, your family moves from Vietnam to Hong Kong mm -hmm. in the late 60s. Yeah, 1969. 69. Yes. And then at 18, mm -hmm. you trundle off mm -hmm. to the US for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where do you go? <laughs> I, I, I went to uh, Whitworth College, which is now called Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. I mean, I was just thinking about what you just said. Okay, yes. You can, you can take me away from my desire for empirical no, I mean, biography. No, it's <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, the, the, the role and the position of the state and how it's in, in structuring one's, you know, very subjective life uh, began for me uh, really uh, when I was trying to get a visa to go to the United States, to uh -huh. go to Whitworth College on the scholarship. Uh, which was very competitive uh, for me to get because at the time that particular scholarship was awarded to only two Hong Kong students and I was one of them. I got very good grades, blah, 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 but then I had to went through like 10 rounds of interviews and essay writings and whatnot to win that scholarship. But mm -hmm. even with that, I went to the U.S. consulate to just you know, try to get a student visa and I was rejected mm. because my father, when he was younger, went to uh, San Diego to do his college degree and had managed to uh, had some property or other sorts of things that are US based. And so when I was asked at the consulate, at the US consulate, whether there is any family connection whatsoever to US, I said yes, because my father studied there and we got other relatives there. Maybe they had bought some properties, whatever. I didn't know all the details. I just was yeah. trying to be honest. On that basis... First was, mistake when dealing with the United States government. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little story. Uh, yeah. I think that, wow. that's, that might have something to do many years later with the fact that I, re I of my current realization that the state is all over you, whether you like it or not, oh. and whether you there are these invisible traps that you walk into. Let me just call them traps by now, for now. 
Um, and that was that felt very very uh, real and vivid for me. And so I had to go through basically hell to finally get uh, to get a one year visa, visa. and then um, my uh, my revenge to the U.S. consulate and the U.S. government was that I was given a one-year visa. I stayed for twenty years <laughs> <laughs> because I, you know, subsequently I, I enrolled in other programs in advanced studies, right. and, and so I, I renew my student visa and renew my student visa until I got employed, and so I got work visa, and then uh, finally I became a U.S. citizen uh, yeah. many years later. That might have something to do with you know yeah. why I do what I do now. Uh, there may, may, may be there are other moments too. I mean, the very fact that we, my, my family, had to leave Vietnam in 1969, of course, uh, was an experience you can never um, ignore, uh, not just for your upbringing, but for your whole constitution. Because you realize when I was when I realized when I was four years old that there was bombing, not too far from my home, and uh, so there's this international uh, imperial sort of uh, things going on. I didn't know these words back then, obviously. But my family was very scared. I was very scared. I, so not you know. So after that, we came to Hong Kong, right. and so that you know there were there were these seeds, as it were, in one's mind. And also, you were, without again at that age knowing it, a minority in Vietnam Mm-mm-mm. and a minority in Hong, in Hong Kong. So growing up here, you were multiply minoritized. Absolutely right, because yeah. you have Filipino heritage, Vietnamese, Vietnamese heritage, and Spanish and Spanish and Chinese. Heritage. And Chinese. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, yes, uh, in 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 the in Vietnam, my mother, being a, a Chinese Vietnamese woman, married a Filipino mm-hmm. Spanish man, which was quite interesting for her time. And my mother was, you know, I, I always thought that my mother was a feminist of a kind because you know she was quite dominating the family to begin with, and also um, she didn't want all the, didn't want the children's names to completely follow my dad's. So uh-huh. each of us had two names. Like I had two names. Uh, Ernie is my father's family name, mm-hmm. but I, I'm also a Chan. Are you? Yes, okay. yes. Because my mother's uh, father, being a Chinese merchant in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, was a Chan. And so mm-hmm. all of us had to be an Ernie and a Chan at the same time, upon my mother's insistence. Uh, anyway, and so um, minoritization um, started you know, basically from that, from that sort mm-hmm. of family uh, history. I thought coming to Hong Kong, I, I always knew that I was a minority because the kids wouldn't let you forget. You know, I was always called Tatai. Tatai when I was growing up in Hong Kong was, I mean, it was un, it wasn't derogatory. It was just they didn't know what to do with you because you're dark skin and you had very curly hair. Mm. They didn't know what to do with you. Mm. And Tatai basically trans basically translates into Indians. Mm. So if you didn't know anything about anyone who's dark skin or curly hair, just call them Indian. That would be fine, right? Yeah. Although I'm not Indian, right? Right. Of course, when I went to the States, I, was, I remained a minority, right? I mean, yeah. so minority in many ways uh, throughout my life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that may have something to do with why I do what I do too. Yeah, sure. I mean, emerging from an imperial and civil war yeah. Yeah. simultaneously. That's right, that's right. Uh, coming to a colonial state. That's right. Being minoritized officially and unofficially. That's right. Yeah. And then, of course, growing up queer. And, and, I mean, yeah, and realizing that I was gay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When does that come upon you, as it were? That recognition. Well, teenage teenager. I mean, like, so. like most of us. And um, but um, the, it really came into uh, fuller recognition mm. when I went when I went to the states. Yeah. This is the evil. 
Well, <laughs> yes, yes. Influence. Right, exactly. <laughs> reaching out, turning you. So you go to Spokane. That's right. The place that nobody can pronounce or spell. Exactly. Right? And it's, it's there that suddenly you're, you're in one of the several countries you've lived in. Mm. You've lived in. Mm. You're an undergrad. You're from somewhere else. You're experiencing, no doubt, further minoritization in the United States, but also coming to a consciousness of your sexual subjectivity. And yeah? everything else, you know, as a person who's capable of doing a few things in the world. Right. I think mm -hmm. that, that, that was very important for me because uh, I went to Spokane and I studied literature and I became very interested in Hawthorne, uh -huh. Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I wrote a thesis on it, on, on questions of suffering. That gave me, I, I think, the very first oh. sort of idea that maybe I could read and, and write, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that was, that was important. So you lacked self-confidence academically growing up? Well, um, academically I was fine, you know, but... Uh, the, spe the specific way in which you could, you know, read a text. Oh, and then you, th you would come up with new interpretations, yeah, you know, new work that would be valuable for others. I think actually. so. So I as opposed so. to, I've learned how to do this yeah. to satisfy my teacher and get the exactly, grade. Exactly, you know. So it's not about academic success, actually. It's about something beyond that, isn't That's it? That's right. Because yeah. I had very good teachers, and, and uh -huh. they, they emphasized that it's not the grades, right? It's, it's how your mind thinks and how you could expand your mind by engaging with these texts and coming up with your own. My God, the Pacific Northwest has a lot to answer for. Well, <laughs> it, was, it was a very wonderful program at, at Spokane. I miss many of these teachers that right. I had. Some of them, uh, I mean, most of them, I, I assume, are still alive. I mean, I look up the, the, uh, the website every now, every now and, and then to see that my old professor is still there. And, do you, and then you went to grad school? Went to grad school in Oregon, University of Oregon. Mm -hmm where I decided to uh, move into communication discipline. Uh, uh, the program was called Telecommunication and Film. So one part of it was film, training in film, film theory. And so I studied with Ellen Sider, uh, wonderful, wonderful teacher, obviously. Um, and she, she's coming here possibly recently for that's a while. Right. She said she emailed that's me right. the other day. That's right, yeah. that's yeah, right. Yeah. We're, we're working on trying to get uh, Ellen to come to Hong Kong, yeah. uh, to Baptist University. So Ellen and other people, uh, Carl Bybee, and later on Janet Wasco, um, opened my mind. Uh, Janet and Ellen, both victims of the podcast. Aha, uh -huh. like right, right. Away. All right. And, and of course you're in redneck country in Eugene, yes. right? I mean, <laughs> yes. it's scary. Yes, but it's not like the Pacific Northwest on the coast, no, no. right? You are you're at a college area, but you're also in redneck land. Uh, yeah, uh, I got used to it um, partly through making lots and lots of friends with Asians, Asian exchange students and foreign students. There, uh, I had very good friends from Singapore at the time, uh -huh. and some other Hong Kong friends and whatnot. Um, and so I, I think I, I, I knew. Oh, I began to learn how to navigate a certain kind of relation between the diasporic self yeah. and, uh, and a self that wanted to be integrated. Sure. Because, I mean, look at the way I speak English, mm. you know. And so uh, I, was, I was always trying to uh, navigate that, that terrain. And you're also navigating cultural studies with Ellen, political economy, oh, and production, hmm? political economy and with production Janet. with Janet. That's right. And your own close reading. And Marxism reading from Carl, yeah. <laughs> Marxism Carl, from Carl Bybee, yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl Bybee, I don't know him. Yeah, well, it's a radical leftist. Uh, 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 and, and close reading from your own enjoyment of mm. doing that as your undergrad yeah. major. from a literature background. Yeah, yeah. interesting. You know.
Interesting. And then, um, and then of course, I went to uh, afterwards. I, I went to do my PhD at Illinois, where Janet had done hers. Actually, That's right. At the That's Institute true. Institute of or for communication. It is for, for yeah. and is it communications or Commun communication research? Yeah, I never. I'm always. I always get of and for wrong in academic titles, and I never know why people care about communication or shins. But it's one of these things where people get very antsy. Anyway, which is a famous program that again has navigated historically mm. all the the boring norms of communication mm. studies, mm. but also cultural studies and political economy. Absolutely. In real tension. Absolutely. Actually, yes. Yes. To say. Yes. It's still up to up to today because right. uh, there's been many many changes as you know you and I both know mm. about the ICR and uh, partly because of that ongoing tension that never went away, and so there are new new formations that I've heard about the ICR. And, and who were you working with there? Who was influential on uh, that? My supervisor was Larry Grossberg. Right. Um, but uh, because uh, I went on to. Um, my PhD focused on the cultural politics of HIV/AIDS mm. and related questions of bodies, and politics, and medicine, and activism. And so I studied with Paula Tricler, mm. who, as you and many and many people know, uh, was uh, quite sing I mean, she quite single-handedly, maybe I'm exaggerating, um, opened up a cultural model of, an mm. of analyzing HIV-AIDS, along with other, so many other people, Doug Krim and everybody else. But, but what was interesting about Paul, if I can interrupt, is that her work got massive recognition by the medical profession yes, and by medical right. scholarship. Absolutely. And that's where I think she really was unusual. That's right. A lot of these other folks were very important in NGOs yes. and the movements. That's right. And I think Paula was quite important there. Yes. And they were important, like her, in the humanities. But actually, Paula Treichler circulates yes. because of this work yes. that she did with you and others very significantly yes. in the medical literature, doesn't it? And one of the other avenues in which she, could, she was able to do this because mm. she actually established a PhD program in, in communication and medicine yeah. at, at Illinois. Yeah. And so through that professional sort of uh, establishment, she mm. was able to um, liaise herself with the medical profession. Oh, was that because they have a famous medical school there at that's right. the U of I? That's yeah. right. That's okay. right. And she had an appointment even there, that's I guess, right. through this program. That's okay. right. That's right. So you're working with Larry on the hyper-theoretical, philosophical, mm -mm -mm. and I guess Birmingham-style mm -mm. politics of mm -mm -mm. the issue, mm -mm. along with your own investments and interests. That's right. As being present in a an, ep an epidemic or pandemic, depending on how you define these things, but a massive crisis massive. of subjectivity yeah. and life. Yeah. And also, Paula's also theoretical and political, but um, perhaps more empirical That's interests right. than tended to be showcased with yes, Larry. Yes, but right? very, very nuanced empirical work. Yeah. Uh, and Larry's insistence on struggle. I mean, these things I learn uh, from uh, from my time in mm. Illinois mm. and stay with me, um, and never forgetting that you know we were we were dealing with questions of political struggles, you know, a la Larry Grossberg and Birmingham, and dealing with empirical. Kind of analysis having a kind of medical dimension, biomedical mm. dimension, a la Paula Treichler. Because it was 1987, mm. I mean, need I say more? In the, in the United States, 1987, two years after the LA Times and the New York Times first reported on these so called mysterious cases where apparently only afflict, afflicted gay men, right? So I was in the middle of that, and so from the nineteen from nineteen eighty seven when I started on the project to 
I don't know, when I finished in, in you know, when, when my first book, Unstable Frontiers, came out in 1994. With the University of Minnesota Press? University of Minnesota yeah. Press. You know, that was the juncture. Yeah. So I couldn't think of anything else, basically. I mean, it, at the time, I felt quite obsessed with this. Because you had, you you know, that's all you read about. That's all, that's all I read about. And I began to go to ACT UP meetings in New York. Um, and, uh, and so I, mean, I was surrounded by all of these, uh, this, this major crisis. Mm. I mean, in a way that, you know, the work that on, on, on human rights, in a way, is, is a continuation yes. of having been troubled um, in that particular way when I was working on my PhD. Mm. And because you're crossing humanities, social sciences, sciences, law, you've done retraining Mm-hmm. to meet those standards, those requirements. Uh, what's it like, though, when you're dealing with people who see themselves as professionals, dedicated only to one of those, when you venture into their terrain? Does that have opposed issues? Oh, yeah. I mean, at my age now, I just ignore them. Right. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if there, there are many people, yes, yes, you know, I mean, um, the, the, the name interdisciplinary is something that's on everybody's mouth and everybody's mm. lips but precisely as lip service mm. in many ways, mm. because how many of us really do venture out? I mean, you were talking about your project Green, from the book Greening the Media, mm. which came from all sorts of different disciplines, mm. you know, and you need to be able to read uh, all sorts of texts and reports and think through them and make connections mm. um, and find conflicts and contradictions and things like that. Mm. Not many of us are trained that way. Not many of us want to venture into these sorts, these sorts of zones. Mm-hmm. And so when I do, uh, you know, when I talk about peop- people from communication, even friends from cultural studies, mm-hmm. many of them to say, you know, would say to me, you know, why bother with the law? Seriously. I've heard that. You know, right. Why bother with the law? Um, you know, that's, you know it, it's, so, um, it's so regressive. It's so repressive. It's, mm-hmm. it's the hegemonic center of power. Why venture into it? You know, why not do other things? Um, that would be that would really kind of expand our minds, and instead of bringing bringing these questions about you know control and regulation and policies into it, of course they don't know that these so-called control and policies and regulations, um, number one, do structure our subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, there are many nuanced contradictions, and they're in fungible in many cases. Exactly. And there are real struggles to be had. And number three, yeah, if you want to struggle for change, yeah. not just to talk about yeah. change, yeah. that's one possible avenue, mm. I, I reckon. Yeah. So why the hell not? Yeah, sure. So after Illinois, you go to New Hampshire, is that right? That's University right. University of New Hampshire, yeah. you become professor of communication yeah. studies. I, 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 my, that wasn't my first job, but my, my, uh, I did a small uh, short stint at University of Wisconsin in a smaller campus of right. Wisconsin in River Falls. And so I, I was grateful for that because it was the first time I realized that I, you know, that I was being professionalized in many ways mm-hmm. as a full-time faculty person. But then it was really at New Hampshire, University of New Hampshire in the communication department there that uh, I had very good colleagues, uh, very good support. Um, uh, they were very rigorous in terms of demands on our scholarship as junior faculty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and, and I also learned how to be a, a kind of a citizen of the university and the department, how to mm. conduct myself in that, you know. And, and during all of this, you're also involved in some of the professional associations to the yeah. point where you... <laughs> <laughs> why are we laughing now? Why are we laughing now? 
we both know and don't right. know why we're laughing simultaneously. Right. But you're not going to ask me to name the name. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you do Trojan service, one might say, <laughs> in professional associations, both in existing divisions or areas, but also in trying to open these places up. Yeah to new approaches that's right and i think let's just leave it at that. exactly exactly <laughs> yeah it was um so after your first book at minnesota you, you go on to do lots more publishing yeah can you yeah. tell us a bit about that and maybe tell people where they might find some of this work in the later 90s into the early right. 2000s when you're still living in the united states that's right yeah um so the the 1994 book called unstable frontiers um was based on my dissertation I st I'm still very proud of it because mm. my focus was different from Paula's, from Doug Crims and other you know people who were at the forefront of theorizing through this crisis. Because my my focus was on treatment activism. Mm -hmm. So because I, I mentioned earlier that I I had somehow uh, gotten myself into ACT UP's work. So after that, uh, you know, the you mentioned the the audience uh, work that I did in communication and culture studies. Um, I don't know if you still remember, at one point, uh, you asked me to um, do a kind of uh, think piece, or I don't know what you call it, state-of-the-art piece or something, on the relationship between media studies and culture studies mm -hmm. in the book called A Companion to Culture Studies mm -hmm. that you edited. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you remember, uh, when I when I sent you the manuscript, you, you said, you used the word groundbreaking, which is forever grateful for, from my side. Um, so see, thinking about media and media studies and culture studies mm. as a conjunction, uh, I did all that. Um, I uh, continued to work on AIDS issue because um, I got some research grants to go to Thailand because the international development of the crisis had at the time become clearer and clearer in my mind that Asia. Mm was going to be devastated by the crisis, mm. especially countries like Thailand, who, of course, had its own historical intersection with colonialism, sexual colonialism, no less, mm. because of the militarization of that part of the world due to the Vietnam War and other conflicts, mm. which led to these uh, many, many you know, military-related or, or not sorts of sexual cultures mm. that uh, made it difficult in many ways uh, for people uh, to deal with these um, uh, biomedical issues. And so I wrote about AIDS in Thailand for a while. I was going to write a book about it. In the end, I decided that, you know, after maybe, you know, three or four art major articles, I just thought that was enough. I, I had nothing else to say about it. And so I didn't, I didn't turn it into a book. Uh, by the mid-90s, uh, I did two books, one of which with, with Akbar Abbas called Internationalizing Culture Studies. Right. So this isn't mid-90s, though. It's, it's mid-90s, yeah. Was that when uh, no, in the mid-2000s. Mid sorry, 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 sorry. That's yeah. right, yeah. Internationalizing cultural studies. With yes, yeah. that's right. Because uh, that project was clear to me, and I hope it, it, it speaks in some ways mm. to people who um, do want to decenter culture mm. studies away from mm. its Eurocentric roots, yep. as it were. Um, and at the same time, I made, the same, I made an argument to the, to the press, which is Blackwell, that if you wanted me to do that book, I wanted to also do another book at the same time, which is called Asian Media Studies. Mm -hmm. Because I want to, I, I think that's an argument. Together, they make an argument. Yeah. You internationalize the center, and then you still do something that's regional, right? Mm -hmm. That outside of the Eurocentric kind of coordinates. 
and so I did these two uh, volumes. Um, but the more recent things that I've done is, you know, I've edited a book called Culture Studies of Rights mm -hmm. with Rutledge, and I'm working on a book and a title that uh, when I talk to some of my friends, they didn't like, but I'm, I'm holding on to it for now. Mm. Okay? It's called Culture Studies with or Without Human Rights. Mm. So um, going back to how we began this, uh, this conversation. Recording. Yeah. And during this period, you also move from New Hampshire in the northeast of the United States back to Hong Kong. That's right. And you've been at a couple of different places here in Hong Kong. That's right. right? So mm -hmm. what draws you back and when? 2000, three years after the handover, which of course reconfigured everyday life in so many different ways in Hong Kong. Mm. I had missed living in Hong Kong, although I had fairly comfortably settled in the US for 20 years, as I said. But Hong Kong was obviously at the back of my mind, especially as it was going through the handover in 1997. Mm. I did several interviews when I was in New Hampshire, being, I think, the only Hong Kong person in the town. Who'd ever been? <laughs> what town was it? This is Durham. In it's New called Durham, New Hampshire. Durham, New Hampshire. Is that, and that's where the state, big state school is. Yes, okay. yes. I'm just kidding. There are other Hong Kong people. But no, somehow but I, got, I got noticed and so I did interviews with different people. Talking about Hong Kong, so it was on my mind. So I, when, I, when I, 2000 came around and I got an invitation to, become, to do a visiting uh, thing here in Hong Kong for just one term, when I came back, I just felt, my God, you know, this is not the Hong Kong that I knew, that mm -hmm. I knew growing up. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't the John Ernie, you know, when I was growing up as this curly hair, dark skin, mm. tatai. I was some, someone else too. Everything you changed. changed. I had you changed. changed. Hong Kong changed. had changed. Everything had changed. And I thought there was some sort of experiment going on in Hong yeah. Kong with, res I mean, quite literally with this constitutional model, right? One country, two system. Was nothing but an experiment. It was so fresh. Nobody knew how to conduct, you know, um, you know, a, a, a governance in that way. Mm. Um, culturally, you know, Hong Kong continued to be a crossroads of all sorts of cultural mm. influences. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese influence seemed to be waning. And so there are other sorts of new things coming up. China was rising, especially its cultural production in film and television mm. and popular music and, and all that. So I thought, wow, this is quite, this is so interesting. I had the best time in those four months when I was mm. doing my visiting mm. in Hong Kong. Mm. I went back to Durham, New Hampshire, and I was miserable. Now, this is not just, I mean, my friends in Durham, I mean, they're, they're lovely and, and all that. It's just that after having had this sort of, it's like a kid in a candy store kind of a thing. And then I went back to Durham and I just thought things were a bit too settled for me at the time. I was already tenured. My students were lovely. I had, was teaching really great courses. Uh, I enjoyed my life, but it was just, it, fe it felt too settled. Yeah. So I, I took a risk um, uh, to give I up. I remember my, talking to you about this. Yes, time. exactly. You know, to give up my tenure position yeah. in the U.S., to come back on a non-tenure contract um, situation in Hong Kong. I joined the City University of Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and I taught gender studies and culture studies, and students felt that I was from another planet, but it was fun. And... Um, after that, I, I moved to Lingnan University mm -hmm. to the Department of Culture Studies, which is a flagship department at that university, and dare I say, a flagship formation in, in our local politics, especially mm -hmm. in the higher education sector. That The Culture Studies Department there is really doing very interesting and engaging work, mm -hmm. not just in teaching, but also in training students to be socially, con you know, socially conscious and 
conscientious as well. Mm, you know? mm. So that was the formation I was involved in. There were some very interesting people and, and uh, leaders in that in that group. And then uh, two years, uh, less than two years ago, I moved to Hong Kong Baptist University because now I'm I'm, I'm at a department called Department of Humanities and Creative Writing, which is only two years old, very very new. Mm. Majority of us in the department are junior uh, faculty, very very energetic and dynamic, very interesting, from Amsterdam and UK and China, and just different train, you know, different kinds of training. Um, there's a creative writing component to my department, so we don't just do so-called traditional scholarship. Mm. Uh, there are people who are award-winning creative writers, fiction writers, and poetry writers, but they talk about, let's say, one of the things they talk about is using these uh, writing skills and, and, and minds to engage with the umbrella movement mm -hmm. that has just uh, taken place in Hong Kong. So I felt that this is a very interesting new um, department, possibly another kind of culture studies formation yeah. to arise in Hong Kong slightly differently from the Ling Nan no model. One. And so I decided to make this leap as well. Right. And so I am, uh, this, is my, this, this is the third time I've given up a tenure position. I'm, I'm, I'm on contract right now. Yeah. Are you? That's right. Even though you're professor chair and That's right. head doctor doctor and all these things. Exactly. Because wow. the, the system works that way. I mean, the, the tenure is in transfer. Yeah. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for this discussion. I've learned things, even though I know you well, mm. uh, as I learn things every time I speak to you, not normally just about you, but about the world. It's been fantastic getting a glimpse into your trajectory, but your concerns in mm -hmm. the contemporary conjuncture. I love that kind of dirty talk. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> and when this new book is finished, whatever its title may be, I hope you'll come back to the pod okay. and talk about it. Yeah, thank Many you so thanks. much, Toby.